it's today been about 22 months since I put it into the world for the first time. When I actually said it to someone who was not me and I got instant validation. And, but it took me like maybe 12 months of eight to 12 months of validation to actually say like, okay, I'm going to go do this thing. My name is Jake Thompson, your Chief Encouragement Officer, and this is the Compete Everyday Podcast, a show designed to encourage and equip you with the tools to build a winning mindset so you can build your winning life. Text PODCAST to 972-945-9113 to join our Morning Motivation Club and visit CompeteEveryday.com for past podcast episodes and to learn more about our resources and gear for ambitious people who are ready to start winning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Competitor Nation. Jake here, your Chief Encouragement Officer, and welcome to this brand new episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast, and you're getting a chance to meet one of my nearest and dearest friends, Lauren Teague. Lauren and I met back in 2016 when we trained with the same speaker program and have just become really, really good friends, and I'm so gracious that she has decided to join us today for episode 635 to talk about chasing bigger professional goals. We talk about her career, how it started as the first social media manager at the PGA Tour, how she was able to not only make big bets, but follow through and succeed in them throughout her career, and what in her late 30s now has transpired and what she's starting that I believe is going to change an industry, and how she developed the courage to do it. In today's episode, we talk about making big bets on yourself, the importance of having the courage to chase your goals, what it means to have work-life integration and not work-life balance, and why for Lauren, every decision, every pursuit she has has to go through her stakeholders, and it's probably not the ones you're thinking about. I'm excited to welcome to the show Fan Wagon founder, speaker, and my dear friend, Lauren Teague. Lauren Teague, welcome to the Compete Everyday Podcast. Hi, Jake. Thanks for having we're, me. We're just going to jump in. So we'll we'll cue some of this up in the intro, but what we were having a conversation off offline that Lauren's like, you got to hit record, is <laughs> I'm fascinated with her career and especially, I'm so freaking excited uh, about what you're doing now. Like I, I have just told people, like when your name's popped up, like I've told Elena, I'm like, she I'm like, we're getting a ride on this yacht one day because she is going to explode and be that name. And so like this, this startup, this idea you have, I think is incredible. But what we were talking about is I've, I've never had the traditional job, the traditional mm-hmm. nine to five. You've had some of that. You've worked at some really awesome brands and organizations. And then also on the agency side. And when I said, you know, when I've done consulting stints and gotten used to, well, there's a paycheck every two weeks versus like speaking, like, very much control of my budget. I'm super conservative with my money because I didn't have any when I started. And I was like, oh, I got to figure out when I'm going to get that next paycheck. I understand from that nine to five, that little bit more comfort in terms of knowing something's coming. And I also know that's why a lot of people never go chase big dreams like this when they're used to having more of that steady income job type. And I wanted to talk to you because in your thirties, 
you, well, you said you've done this multiple times, but <laughs> in have. this sense, you're going after, I love it. It's, I call it Moby Dick. Like you are Ahab going after a monster fish that I a thousand percent support, believe in, and know you're going to succeed at, but it takes guts. And for people listening, there's a lot of people listening that have these ideas and these goals and these visions of something they think they can create. Maybe they're not sure, but the unknown and the idea of having to eat what you kill for the most part from an income standpoint is terrifying. And so I'm curious as someone who's done iterations of this, how have you built that muscle of courage to bet on yourself? I'm flattered that you think so highly of my reckless choices. <laughs> you say you say reckless, but you have a pretty successful career. I've had a good track record. I think I also have um if if you start at the very beginning, I grew up in a small town like an 5,000 8,000 person town. Um, no stoplights and no McDonald's till I was like a junior in high school. Right. So, um, I grew up literally in the dirt. My first jobs were working with my, my own family and my dad on a Christmas tree farm. And I remember being five ish and getting to go out and put tree seedlings into holes and calling that work. Right. But I literally grew up in the dirt in a Christmas tree field for a family business, like work was just part of the vocabulary. My dad is still maybe not, maybe my dad is still the most impressive, hardest worker I've ever met. My sister is probably a close second. She is bound and determined. So the fact that people look at me and say like, wow, you've done some, you make hard choices or you've done like maybe, but it feels real cush compared to grinding, like literally grinding it out of dirt, um, as a farmer, as a rancher, as a forester, you know, that kind of thing. I, I mean, I learned pretty quickly that was not my path. So I, I think kind of those first pivots were, okay, you have a, you have a cush summer job, you're outside, you're off by two 30 every afternoon. Well, as soon as I got a car and as soon as I got my driver's license, I went for like, this is fine, but I'm sick of being dirty all day and being out and like, what if I went to work at like a store? What if I went to work retail? Right. Like that's cool. Oh. Let me <laughs> tell you get into it. Right. But when you're like 16, you're like, wow, there's like people my age here. And like, this is new and exciting. So I think I've always not been afraid to take like a big pivot or a swing and see kind of what else is there. And, and that kind of pushes your your skill set and it pushes your not just your experience, but like who you're working with, how you relate to them, how you make friendships and work, how how to, you know, what the company culture of family farm business to like mega retailer, you know, looks like. So when I think about that, I've I've just kind of always pivoted. And then when I got to the PGA tour, I got my dream job when I was 23. And I don't recommend that to most people because the hard part about getting your dream job when you're too young to appreciate it, even though you kind of, you have enough wisdom to kind of know you're supposed to appreciate it. The thing about that is when it becomes your reality, it truly becomes like less of a dream. Um, And so I remember getting my dream job, moving across the country in three suitcases, my golf bag, and like five boxes I FedExed from Oregon to Florida. And I show up you know, new job, PGA tour, brand new position. That's also, I was about to say, let's preface for those listening what that brand new position was. Yeah. So I was the first person to ever 
touch social media at the PGA tour. So I was at PGA tour on Twitter, uh, 23, 24, 25 year old me, um, tweeting about live golf, uh, forcing other people to do it, teaching players how to do that, teaching tournaments and, uh, and internally kind of to champion and be the subject matter expert on all things, quote unquote, social media for an organization like the PGA tour and all of its entities. So I set up multiple tournaments for the first time, sitting down with players over lunch and showing them the difference between an at and a pound sign on Twitter, you know, that kind of thing. Um, which is interesting that segue being, I've never actually had a job, even though I've worked nine to fives or whatever, nine, like 24, seven, 365, if you're at the PGA tour. Um, but even though I've done that, I've never fell into a conventional role. So outside of like working a cash register at the gap outlet, you know, I've never actually been in a role that has been predefined. So my first job out of college, well, yeah. And and my first job out of college was at a small startup, a media company. And I was the first PR comms person there. What does that look like? Well, we don't know, but here you go. Right. Like, okay, figure it out. Let me figure this out. Let me put together a press kit. Let me put together the marketing materials. Let me put together a 10 day high school speaking tour, ironically, um, in New York. Right. Like, so, okay, I'll just build this thing. Now you go to the PGA tour, go build this thing, go build social media. We had no idea it was going to turn into, I knew enough to be dangerous. I'd, I'd grown up in college with like, I had a Facebook page, then I had a MySpace page, then I had Twitter but I didn't know what that was going to look like and translate to. And it certainly didn't think that it would be something that when I left there, that they would backfill me with four different roles and then make what I was doing with social part of literally everybody's job on the content team. Right. When I was there, writers were writers and photographers were photographers and TV people were TV people. And I was the social person. And then it became me plus one, right. We're the social people and everything went through us. Well, by the time I left, that was not the model. And so a writer was also covering social, a photographer was also editing and posting, right? Like, so it became um, part of that, but you have to start somewhere. So I've always gotten to kind of start and build these things. So then when I went out on my own after the PGA tour, I moved quote unquote, back home, back to Oregon. I was pregnant with one child. I had a one-year-old. We were buying a house for the first time. My husband's got a new job. And I was like, I guess I go work at Nike. I, I, what's the answer? I have no idea. And I listened to a couple of people who said, you can do this on your own. And those people actually ended up being people that I leaned on and partnered with to be able to go do that on my own. So I was able to have and raise three children and have my own business uh, and have my own consulting practice. I was able to watch them grow up and join sports PR summit as a partner, because I literally built a new event that nobody had ever done before. Which so, let's, let's give a, uh, I'm, you're like breezing through some like really big stuff. It, uh, like, like it's just no big like, deal. You're it's all no just betting on like, I know you're like, yeah, it's, it's no big deal. Like sports PR summit is a massive event from a who's who in sports and public relations and communications. Sure. And you're one of the founding partners that created that kind of. Yes. Yeah. Let's go with that. Yeah. I cre- so- yeah. But I did, I created the digital side of the, the digital event and I, you're right. I have seen the behind the, the scenes. We've had conversations, you know, during the pandemic, influence. an event business that can't have events does not have a business. Yeah. So we shifted. So we said, okay, what does this look like? And I have the experience of being online and in community and, and, and understanding what, what something else could be. And I think that's probably it is I've never been defined in a box 
and I've never looked at one thing inside. Okay. I'm safe. And maybe, maybe the only time being the dream job of my thirties was getting to work with organizations or on part of the convince and convert team, because it was a contract position, but it was also steady. If I can get in 20 hours a week, it's literally all I have to do. And it leaves me room to have children, raise children, be in their preschools, be the preschool president and figure out what that next dream is. Cause just like at the PGA tour, you get into it. You're like, this is great. Oh shit. It's my reality. How do I work within making this the best reality it can be? And also while you're doing that, the thing that we miss is also a big idea for a later point in my career is how do you create a new dream out of your new reality? Because you look at athletes and entrepreneurs and people who have achieved the thing, they've crossed the finish line, but there are a certain group of people who do that when they're like 20 in their twenties, you know, and athletes, I remember looking at Brandon Roy's career. He was a Portland trailblazer player, um, plagued by chronic near, oh my, me too. Right. Plagued by chronic knee problems. I actually interned for the trailblazers the year before our, our crappy season set up the, the Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge double draft, which was great. So I was a huge fan of theirs, even though I didn't actually get to work with them. Um, you know, we were the same age, both babies from 84. So we, uh, I remember watching his career play out at the trailblazers as I was then at the PGA tour. And I remember the day that he was forced to retire because his knees just couldn't do it anymore. And he understood that. And we were 28. And I remember sitting there and thinking, not only if you've gotten your dream job, which I I felt like I, I did bar none dream job, PGA tour. And then at five years later to say, like, it's been taken from you. What do you do now? You have your whole rest of your life and you have no idea what you're going to go do. You have to create new dreams from your current reality. Let so me, let me ask that's you the something thing I've done. That. well. So I, I want to ask you something about that because there, the athlete point brings up a really good point as well of believing the best is yet to come and not having your identity so tight with what you do, but who you are. Because Roy, and, and I don't know what he's up to now. I, I loved watching him. Him and Grant Hill are the two guys I look at. And I think, man, if you just could have stayed healthy, what would your career look like? Uh, but like a guy like that, 24, 25, his dream job's over. If he spent his entire life as a basketball player and he is no longer a basketball player, that creates depression, that creates a lack of self-worth. There's a whole thing mm-hmm. that you can go to. And, and business leaders do it all the time. Entrepreneurs do it all the time. Sure. They build something. They expect it to fulfill them. It doesn't fulfill them. They attach their worth to that outcome versus process. So for you as someone who has bet big and bounced around, how do you make sure your worth doesn't come tied to what you do, but who you are? And I know this is important, obviously, because a mom of wonderful children with the cutest Christmas cards. They are good Christmas cards. Uh, How do I make sure that my worth isn't tied to what I do? For me, I mean, that's a really hard thing for me to separate because when I was at my lowest points at the PGA tour career going like, I'm never going to make it. They don't understand me. I don't get the culture. I don't have good management. Like I'm, I'm begging for some direction. Those I remember not being able to like see that I was going to be there for three years. I mean, there are, there are like financial milestones when you're there, right? Like, oh, yeah. you fully vest at such and such. And, da, da, da. and I was like, I'm never going to make it to that. I won't make it five years here. There, in the way that this is happening, there's no way. 
So maybe I've also gotten okay at saying like work is work and compartmentalizing certain parts. Like I can't control what's here, but what I can control what I go do outside of this. So I took up golf again and then running and then getting super involved in the young professional community in Jacksonville when I was there, when I come here uh, and now I'm a mom, it's, it's kind of looking outside myself and outside of the thing that I'm known for the thing that puts dollars in my bank account and saying, how can I get involved in the community? Um, what, not, what are the steps to run for mayor? But like, I mean, it's crossed my mind, like, okay, well the town I live in is not very large. Like someday someone's going to have to be on city council. It's probably going to be me. Right. Like, I don't know. I think I'm just wired that way, but Hey, let me go build a hundred billion, a hundred million dollar company first. And then I'll come back and be on city council. Yeah. So that's where I want to transition. So we met back in 2016, we both went through the same speaker training program and you Mm -hmm. have spoken social media, marketing world, digital summit companies all over the world, uh, digital marketing, social media, marketing, content community. You're a wizard at that. Uh, and absolutely love. And so that's how we got connected. You're a Dallas Stars fan, which we immediately became besties on and, and go to games every year for New Year's, which I just love that you and your husband are down here and do come down here and do that. But you decided to make a big bet. And this idea, when you first talked to me about, it, I can't even tell you where I was. I was out walking the dogs uh, over by the lake where we just did. He told me this idea and I was like immediately like, Lauren's about to change an industry. And what I want to know is when you have an idea like this, you're doing something, you're working at it. You think maybe this is not what I want to do forever, but I'm still not quite sure what that next move is. And then you have this idea, the friction you immediately feel, I think Stephen Pressfield calls it like the enemy or or something like that of the, the force internally of the pushback of that's too big. You don't have the funds to start something like that. You don't have some of the experience to start something like that all hit you at once. I would imagine And so talk to me about those early days of having the idea, dealing with that inner tension, may still be dealing with that inner tension, and how you're going about approaching biting off a big goal. And you can share as much as or as little about the business, (laughs) but if you share little, I'm just going to tell everybody, this is like, if I could put a ton of money into something right now, this would be it. That's very sweet of you. And also I'll be looking for $5 at a time. So you're welcome. Fair enough. And So this is an idea that is actually, it's just been a problem. It's it's an irritant. It's an annoyance, which I think is actually where good business ideas come from. Um, Especially the more that I've studied better business ideas. So it has been, as you said, we're Dallas Stars fans. My husband grew up in the DFW area, only kid who grew up there in the nineties, who is like, you know what my favorite sport is? Hockey. I don't get it but I can respect it. Maybe a hundred of them in the Metroplex. And now I agree. I know you're like, you got the Cowboys, you got the Mets, you got the Rangers. Come on. Um, so, uh, so it became an annoyance that we have piles of jerseys, green t-shirt. I mean, our whole family could just wear green for like a week, right? Because we all have just different shades of Dallas stars, things and whatever. So as my kids are growing out of them, I'm like, where do I put them? Where do I, I can't put these into bags that I also give like other clothes away that are this size because one, like those people don't care. It's a fan item. Certain people won't appreciate it. And two, like, so if I can't pass it on in a goodwill, cause I live in Oregon again, nobody's going to care. It's going to sit there forever. It's not going to, where do I find the person who's going to like value this as much as my family does? 
well, I can't find that. So I'm looking at like Facebook groups, Facebook marketplace, da, 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 da. can I put it on eBay? eBay sucks. Um, you know, can, there's not really a good spot for that kind of apparel. So I shove it to the back of the closet six months later, one year later, you know, I add to the pile. I look at the pile, like go look online again to see if there's anything else that's popped up. Cause surely someone is going to build a marketplace where people can exchange buy, resell fanware. Like it just makes sense on so many levels years go by and that's, it has not happened. So in the pandemic, as we all are cleaning out our houses, cause we're sick of being in them for 18 months or whatever, at least the people who don't live in Texas, um, <laughs> Florida, we were, you know, out and about, yeah, that's fine. Um, you know, so I'm looking at this and I was like, God, what would it take? What would it take to build this as a Facebook group, as a marketplace? And then I don't know, I, Oh, I could probably do that. Like, okay, I'm kind of at the point where I'm ready to, but a lot of things have to line up, right? To me, for me to be not only like, oh, that's that's a great idea. Oh, I could actually do that. I've been in digital and project management for 15 years. I know what marketing looks like. I know what people want. I know what moms need. I can see the business trends that resale is approaching $30 billion by 2026 as an industry. I know the growth of fanatics. I've been watching it because I'm a customer, you know, so I, I know they're selling six and a half billion dollars of fan apparel every year. And where is that going? Every time I talk to somebody like, Oh, I just moved. I just got rid of all that. Well, where did you put it? Well, I put it at Goodwill. Well, Sounds somebody like wants that. <laughs> right. So like, I mean, I, I mean, essentially it's like the paraphrasing of it. So to say like, that's a good idea to like, oh, I could probably do that. And then to start to like socialize that idea. Is this as good? And that's, you know, and then I called you, is this a good idea? What, what do you do with your staff? It's today been about 22 months since I put it into the world for the first time. When I actually said it to someone who was not me and I got instant validation, and, but it took me like maybe 12 months of eight to 12 months of validation to actually say like, okay, I'm going to go do this thing. Like I've saved up some money. Let me put it towards building a business. Now, 22 months later, do I wish I would have moved faster over the last 12 months or over the last 20 months? Like a hundred million percent, everybody does. At the same time, I'm also balancing growing my marketing business, my consultancy, and I have three team members of my own. So like balancing that part of it, keeping them partially employed, keeping them supported, keeping my family because the risk part is I'm much less risk personally. If it was just me, I have all my chips are in, yep. but I can't do that to three kids. I can't do that to my home. I can't do that to my husband. Um, so I, I am more risk averse, which means I got to be a lot smarter about how I go do it. And if it takes longer to do so, um, because I want to cross off small, like bite off small pieces, then that's okay. And I have to make I have to be more okay with that than ever before, because I, I know it's not too far from now where I'm going to be like full blown pedal down. And I, I'm going to miss out on some things on that side. So, yeah, that that's actually one of the things I'm curious. I want to ask you about of mentally what you're doing for those check-ins, because, you know, we heard for years this, you got to go all in, you have this big idea, you're going to change the world. You got to go all in. And I, maybe my first couple of years of business thought about it. And then I was like, no, like I'm taking on a ton of debt right now. I'm trying to build this. Like I believe in the long term, but like should have kept some side hustle and another business or something running in the meantime while building this. Cause that's the strategic smart. It's not 
it's how can you stay in business to create the idea, not necessarily how cool can I look as an entrepreneur to burn the boats and go do it. So for you balancing that, because patience is not always our friend, mm -hmm. how are you remaining patient in that process of daily incremental growth versus I got to get it all done this month? I listen to this really great podcast where like three days a week, I get like five or 10 minutes of inspiration and motivation. And I just, uh, I'm just ready to just, to go, go claim the world. Smarty pants. And now you're on the podcast. So there, exactly. there we go. Now we can listen oh. back. No, I just, I just find it curious because like I, and for me with like my ADHD, once I have like a, an idea like that, I'm like, go, like I have note pages of business ideas and mm -hmm. brand ideas and stuff that I just have to like spend like a week vomiting out. And looking back, I'm thinking, God, what a terrible waste of time all that was because it's just sitting in this parking lot, no. but it's all like flushing out where it's like, if I didn't train myself to rein it in, I would be chasing squirrels all over the place in a rush to get one done versus patiently working that process that now I kind of go through. So I'm always fascinated with something like this of how do you manage the fear of someone beating you to the market? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really true. And I've had people that I love and trust who have said it's a good idea until somebody else does it. Right. I, I, I am torn between the balance of, of understanding, like I do want to move faster, but I also can't lose myself and I can't lose myself as a parent and the process. So those are, those are true Norths for me. I could sit here in my office, literally from the moment I wake up to the time I like want to fall asleep at 1am. I am the person that like, I could just be here and I could bang it all out and I would have moved much faster, but it's not fair to the other people in my life. And it's not fair to the stage that I'm at. So I'm going to lose a few steps and I'm just going to have to be okay with that. You, and I look at certain entrepreneurs or people who have championed the hustle or the all in and that kind of culture. And I respect them, but I can also respect that that's not how I think about business. I think about business as relationships as much as, you know, sitting down and, and actually banging out the work. So both have to be true for me. So if, if I'm spending time making sure that my team is taken care of and that I'm in service to my team so that they can go do marketing things on the marketing side of our business that eventually do result in revenue for me uh, and keep all of us <laughs> employed until this other thing gets going, then I understand that I have to do that. And if I still have a commitment to lead a preschool board meeting or do parent helping, then I have to step out of this at whatever stage it is and spend those three to four hours. And so I've just always been good. And again, I think it's probably just compartmentalizing like how much I can actually get done. Now, do I wish I had a little more JT in my life? Yes. Okay. I wish that I could like line up the goal sheets and do the daily habit tracker and do all these things. This is why we're good friends because I just need you to kind of remind me that when I'm ready for it, that those are the tools that will get me there. But being able to also take my time has allowed me to understand how to align everything I'm doing. No, you were, you were talking about, you know, it's given you the time to balance everything in terms of life. Yeah. What I was curious about, one of the things I wanted to ask you about along those lines was, do you think it was the growing up hands in the dirt family business that 
instilled this idea of work-life integration versus the popular phrase of work-life balance. Oh yeah. Because I feel like you try to integrate everything together because like the kids, so let's talk your kiddos. Like I sent you a bunch of my old Panthers gear, TCU gear, stuff that doesn't fit anymore. And you're like, the kids have summer job, like you're integrating part of it. So was, would that be similar from your work of growing up in the family business? You know, they, it is, I've always been one to think about work life as a blend, not a balance balance. There is nothing really true about balance. Like you're always moving to maintain it. It's, it's not a, like, it's not a set point. So for me, it's been a blend. And sometimes I have to blend harder into mom life and in family. And sometimes I have to blend harder into a lean harder into work. Um, you know, and that's like day by day, hour by hour, week by week, and then over the course of years in a in the career. But you're right in that starting fan wagon. I the most important buy-in that I will ever have to get is from the four people who live in my house, not the 40 people I have to go pitch or the, you know, the 4,000 customers I'm going to need to go acquire and, and that kind of thing. So getting the buy-in and then showing them, you know, it's very important to me to show my two sons and my daughter, how that mom works hard, that she works just as hard as anybody else she knows as they know, and that I can do anything. Cause I, I don't see very many limits on, I mean, there are, but I don't really see a ton of walls that I can't try to bust through. And so I want them to be there. So I took my two littlest ones to my lawyer's office during Christmas break when I signed the incorporation papers, right? I wanted them to be there. They might not remember it, but I want them to be there from the get-go. I have a mannequin and I have a light kit and it's all on that side of my office and they will come in and they will put shirts on the mannequin and take pictures. And you know what? They're not the best pictures, but they're doing it. And they understand that that part is the business. So when I can turn around and say, Hey, you know what? I know I was just on the road last week, but I have to go to Phoenix for Super Bowl activities because golf is in town and Super Bowl and sports business. And I got to go because it's going to cost me more if I don't go and start telling people about fan wagon than I do. They're going to cry that I'm leaving. And they're also going to be okay with it. You know, like it's, it's a kind of a give and take. And so they are the most important stakeholders I have. Um, and I want, you know, I want this to be something that they're proud of, but also that they feel like they are part of. And I don't know a ton of entrepreneurs who, who start a big business or who start a tech business, um, and thinking in that way. And I think some of that does come from like watching my dad build not a huge business, but we were comfortable, we were successful. And I think you're parents did the same thing, right? Like you were just, it's part of the fabric of your family. And I don't have to be, a, you know, it's just part of the culture of who I am. So I was about to say, it's, it's part of who you are and, and to your kids credit for their mannequin skills, you probably weren't the best with Christmas trees. And I was definitely not the best at cleaning gas pumps and stocking the cooler, but yeah. you learn over time. I, I want to ask you, the two reps, get, right? You have it, to get the reps in. And if you can start yeah. getting reps when you're eight, nine, 10, and you understand what work is, I mean, it's going to, it, we have to, we have to yeah. teach work earlier. Yep. It's, it's Daniel coils. The talent code that I'm reading currently is all about the importance of the early reps. And it's not necessarily the talent, but how many intentional reps are you getting in that process? And how are you getting those messy reps? One of the things you, you mentioned, two things there I want to hit on. And one, I'm curious, do you and your husband have a weekly, monthly routine questions, 
ritual to get on the same page going into a week, knowing how much you both have going on, plus the kids of like a pulse check or a plan ahead that you find helpful? Next question. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Everybody's, di- everybody's different. No, it's just, I think of like somebody, me, I just have like dogs. And like, yeah. we check in of like, where are you traveling? What it is. But like, we're not like, who's picking up? Who's got this? Where am I going? You're building this when you're on the I road. Mean, like I mean, I'm in charge of, I'm mostly in charge of the calendar okay. um, and the kids. So just small tools, right? Like, okay, yeah. we've got shared calendars. I've got all the kids schedule stuff in there. Um, my bad that I haven't added gymnastics to the calendar, which is why my daughter just busted in. Um, but I, uh, you know, so it's that it is running through, um, and you know, like we don't have a, like, Hey, at eight 55, after the kids go to bed on Sunday night, we're going to talk about the week, but it happens fairly organically, especially kind of as the week's getting started, I'll write down a schedule, like a weekly schedule with the things that are either. I have a Canva template and I can print that out and I can add a few things where I can just handwrite. Like here's the things I know that we're going to have to pay attention to this week or that are different from the normal schedule. Um, and I put it on the refrigerator. I just bought a nice little memo board from Ikea. I'm going to put that up too. Maybe, maybe we got to go to step two shared calendars, that kind of thing, but also organically, uh, quote unquote family meetings around the dinner table. Right. So like we started a family meeting oh, about this time last year when we announced to them that we were surprised taking them to Disneyland. Now that's probably the best family meeting we're ever going to have, but set the bar really high from the get-go. Really good, but they don't seem to be too disappointed when we're just having dinner and they'll look around the table and say, does anyone need a family meeting? And that's not me saying that that's the seven-year-old that's the nine-year-old, right? That is. So they're understanding that like, there are times where we're all together and this is a time to talk about things. Um, you know, sometimes it happens, you know, late at night before we fall asleep. And that's like the one time of a of day that like my husband and I can have an uninterrupted conversation. And it's just like, you know, some good stuff comes off your chest, you know, when you're just kind of like in the dark, just ready to kind of be done with it or be done with the day. And you're like, okay, well, what about tomorrow? What about this? What about this? And, and those kind of organic conversations then become, um, like part of that, but I don't have like, I mean, I have 800 planners and I have 800 calendar tools. And I know that's why I I was curious. I don't think it makes uh, me better, but we've, we've done it in a way that works. And as, as kids, as everybody gets busier, actually, as everybody gets busier, as I get busier, less of that happens with me. Right. I, I don't lead, I don't lead all of it at home because when I'm not here, I can't micromanage what they're doing. So I have to set them up for success and then pull out, which I think is the mark of a good leader to say, here's the vision. Here's the goal. You all know your roles. And if I'm literally not in the same state as you, then I can't touch it, right? Like I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to try to over-influence what you're doing. I'm going to, rec- well, this whole thing's recorded obviously, but I'm going to cut that section and remind you about a year or two from now. <laughs> While you're in this startup mode, because I know what that can do and having Mm -hmm. your hands in everything. And when it's time for you to not have your hands in everything, just want to play this, this piece back as a reminder. The, the last thing I want to wrap up on is something you said about going to Phoenix for a Super Bowl waste management weekend, uh, sports, you know, world descended on the desert last week. You said it would cost more to not be there looking at the opportunity of going versus the cost of waiting or skipping. And I would love to talk 
about that mindset from your perspective and how you judge that? Because I think a lot of times we look at the upfront cost of, oh, it's going to be an expensive flight and hotels are bananas right now. And, oh, you know, I'm taking a couple of days out of work versus the cost on the back end that we end up paying for not taking action. And so talk to me about your thought process and what finally pushed you to go. So a couple of things, I, you know, I was fortunate that I, I have family and friends in Arizona. I went to college in Northern Arizona. So to get to Phoenix from Portland, it's not a expensive ticket. It's not, a, it's not a ton of lift. I have a place to stay or multiple places to stay. Um, I have that. So when I looked at that, my friend who my best friend from college um, is doing some work with me right now. She's the executive producer, one of them on my podcast, and her husband works for NFL Network. So they were going to be in town. So she's got that whole side of that business covered. I we're going to try to get you a ticket for honors if you want to come. Da, 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 da. So she just kind of dropped it again. We had been talking about it and joking about me coming down. And she like two weeks before Super Bowl, she was like, you know, no one's staying at our house and you're welcome to. And I said, okay, let me just look. Well, a plane ticket is three twenty-five. A car rental three twenty-five, right? Plus gas. So the car rental is going to be as much. Oh my god, more that the worst. Um, you know, so I'm like, okay, I don't have to play for a place to stay. I know I need the car; it's essential because it's Phoenix. You have to get everywhere, right? Yes. And then you're on your own terms. I can apply for a media credential for the PGA Tour event. I can go there. So when you start asking, like lining up, like I just said, as if for a week, I did buy a ticket that was you know refundable, but. Um, what if it, what does it look like if for a weekend I act as if I'm going to go, what meetings can I line up? Who can I contact on LinkedIn? Who can I start? Uh, you know, what does the calendar look like? Who else is going to be there? I'm going to act as if, and it played out for me. And I knew that like, even up to the day before I could cancel the car and I could cancel the flight and I wouldn't really lose anything. Um, and I, so I acted as if I could go. And I got all those things lined up and I had a trip where I went to the golf course twice. I saw a past client of mine who just happens to work out with a professional female athlete who just happens to have connections to investors who are in the Valley, who just might actually become my pseudo CFO, like my fractional CFO at some point down the road. Right. So like just that one 30 minutes on the 18th hole that's huge. Well, then I go to a founders live event on Friday where I'm sitting with other founders and other athletes or not other, sorry, and athletes. Uh, and I'm not going to put myself in that category, but I'm in a room with founders, event planners, uh, venture capitalists and people who I had a conversation and he's like, can you do this thing on your marketing side? What is, what do you do? What does it cost? Can I call you next week? Well, if I've just landed a client that pays for me and my team for three months or six months, opportunity cost, right? What does it cost for me not to be in that room? What does it cost me for not to be talking to player agents in PGA tour players? I used to work with all of the time and just saying like, they're like, wow, we haven't seen you in forever. What are you doing? Oh my gosh. Well, how, how many minutes do you have? Right. I'm a start. I'm founding a startup. I've got a podcast. My kids are great. How are your kids? Like opportunity costs not to go when you know that you can get something done that you cannot physically do from your office. Where, where do you draw the line on that? Cause we've had these discussions before about like speaking opportunities for you on the East coast. It's a whole lot different hall than from Texas. Oh, sure. Yeah. Where do you decide of like, nope, not going, not worth it. Or kids, I need to be here kind of thing yeah, I've versus been, something like those. 
I've gotten way better at saying no to things that don't play out with the opportunity cost. Cause I used to be like, Oh, you want me to come speak? Like, okay. Like you, like, what else can I do? Right. And like, sometimes what else can I do is like, what other experience can I build in? Who else can I see? Who haven't I seen in that part of the world? Those things are all part of the equation for me, but I have gotten better at saying no, no, it doesn't, that math doesn't play out. And so I think it is a mix of, um, you know, we're talking a little bit off camera, off, uh, audio about the difference between a hustle day and a heart day in Phoenix. I had two hustle days. I worked my ass off. I was everywhere. I didn't wear heels. That was self-care, but everything else like I did. Right. And, and I, two hustle days and I was exhausted after two hustle days. I felt good about the work I put in. I felt good about the contacts I made and the, and the work that I did. I had one heart day, my last day in Phoenix, which was define that. So a heart day for me is getting able, being able to spend more time with people I care about or haven't seen, or just taking more time to kind of do the relationship building rather than like the networking hustle, like gotta be everywhere, gotta, you know, gotta do the research, gotta be seen and, and that kind of thing. The heart day for me was I woke up at my best friend's house. I drove an hour, saw my best friend, saw another best friend from college who I haven't connected with in 15 years, right? He he's off socials and I'm on socials. So we don't get a chance to also that conversation by the end of that conversation, he, it was like, here's eight people you can talk to for fan wagon. Like, okay. So that's a hustle, but it comes from a heart. It comes from like a relationship piece. Saw somebody else I used to work for same thing, right? It's a heart piece. Got back to the golf tournament in a completely different mindset. Then I went on Thursday more confidence, more direction, more purpose, because I had done the work the last two days. And then I had a chance to kind of like sit in it and just feel really good. I got way more out of that last day at the golf course than I did the first day, uh, because I was just, I was just in a different space. I had more time for people. I had more time for the relationship building. And, and I need that, that, that is essential to who I am. Um, and to, so to have, Two hustle days is fine, but I can't do a whole week of that. I'm just not wired that way. Well, I was about saying, and you learning that process allows you, if you have a week long trip, to do a two one one one, to where you can do two hustle heart day hustle day heart day, of just planning it and being intentional. And that's also just comes with time of you knowing this is what I can handle. This is what I can manage. And for those listening, I'm also going to point out that your hustle days are like ten of most people's. Because I know you and you're on the go and moving on and you're a mover and a shaker. And so I know you are just getting after it. So uh, when, when you talk about hustle, it's at a whole other, whole other level for most folks. So uh, I just want to point that out and and commend you on that. So uh, for anyone listening, we've teased it. We've talked about it. Where can we listen to your new podcast? And then where's the best place to learn about this mysterious fan wagon that you are building and will ultimately change the industry? Well, the podcast is called the brand to fan show, because I've always believed throughout my career, you probably picked up on this by now and this conversation on that relationship is the way to build business. And the way that that comes through in marketing is, um, is to build affinity. So don't just settle for a follower, but put in the time and the effort to build fans. And so brand to fan is all about unpacking the phenomenon of the natural fandom that we kind of all gravitate to and then how businesses and brands can kind of reverse engineer that to make 
closer relationships with their own fans and build fans to build for the future. It's called the brand fan show. Um, it's on everywhere you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Apple and Amazon and Google, and also on YouTube on my YouTube channel, Lauren T Teague, um, and brand And, uh, I think that's enough of those plugs. The brand fan show is also sponsored by fan wagon. Uh, so I've done a nice job of kind of putting these things together. Um, I yep. believe in fandom so much. I'm built and literally building a company about it or around it. Um, so fan wagon is F A N W A G N.com. It is the online marketplace to buy and resell out of your own closet fan fashion. Um, so we're starting in sports fan fashion, anything you can conventionally wear from your head to your knees. So hats, scarves, if you're a soccer fan, the jerseys, the sweatshirts, the shorts, the kind of all the cool stuff. And it doesn't have to be vintage and it doesn't have to be brand new. We want whatever's in your closet um, that you're you know, ready to pass on. And we want also to be a place to unearth and discover some really cool stuff um, as well. So that's fanwagonnoo.com. I'm also on socials uh, as fanwagon and we're seeking, actively seeking sellers to build inventory um, to match with the buyers that we have coming to the site. I was about to say, I, I will probably have some pretty niche buyers as a Carolina Panthers fan and TCU football, but uh, I, I've got the gear. And, and what we, what I love most is, is not only the opportunity to find that stuff that, you know, maybe you missed out on, but knowing that, you know, you drop stuff off at, at a donation place, uh, you give it away. It just goes. And you have no idea who's going to pick it up. And the, the reason I know that is because I'd seen like some really old compete shirts that we had donated. We had a stack of them. I think they were like misprinted. They were stacked. And I saw one of them walking around town one day. I thought, oh, that's cool. Like I know where that shirt came from. But then you start thinking about it from a fan standpoint. It's a team gear. And we have these memories and this love of the games and the mm -hmm. best games. And we want somebody else who's going to appreciate it as much as we do to wear it. Because unlike most of our outfits, we outgrow them. Uh, either they get too small or they're too big. And so we just don't even think anything about them. But with fan gear, it's there's something special about that memory and that, that fandom. And so I love your concept because you're really putting that gently worn much loved gear into somebody else's hands is going to love it as much as you do, uh, which really creates just a cool circle with the gear and the experience. So, yeah. And um, you mentioned circular and that's actually a huge problem in the industry, right? So, um, everybody's got a green initiative or a sustainability initiative, but no one's touching apparel. And what's right. happening is that billions of dollars of apparel are being sold every year. And then, you know, they, they get through the process and they end up in a different continent. They they end up in closed deserts. And if you Google the images, it's disgusting. So I tried to talk myself out of this every which way from sideways. I mean, I really tried not to start this business. Um, but the thing that I realized, like I got the hook was, okay, the thing that really bothers me is that we treat Goodwill as our personal, like clothing dumpster. Yep. You know, you might, you like, you, you can't bear to throw away the pair of pants that have the hole in them. So you'll give them to Goodwill under the guise that somebody else is going to want them. They don't. Goodwill yep. is nice about trashing that for you. So you don't have the effect. But I realized that textile waste and sustainability is the hook. If I am successful and I, you know, maybe rent a yacht one day to take Jake out on, or we go golfing somewhere. Please. I was about to say, let's do the golf. We'll yacht somewhere and then play a round of 18. Okay. Deal. But you know, but like, I really want to, I'm a mission driven entrepreneur. This is a mission driven yep. company. So the mission is 
create more circular solutions for this one category, but also try to go solve a problem. Like, I mean, it's as big as plastic in the oceans. It's just, you know, we're getting better at hiding it. So, or people aren't going there to to solve that yet. So I want to help solve that problem. And then once I realized that that was the hook, that was the thing that's going to keep me invested. If I build a big company and, you know, whatever, whatever, like that's the thing that's. And so I I feel much better about that. It's green. It's going to be B core. It's women led. I have very specific ideas about how business should be done in, you know, in our culture and in our, so to be able to do that and impart that um, and play it out, maybe it doesn't work, but I'm, I'm going to try. So. Love it. I love it. Well, and your, your thought reminds me just how much most of us don't know, like what happens to this stuff after it's gone. And I think about, you know, your conversation there, what happens to these products that are tossed or trashed there, there was an article on the hustle.co about like hotel soap, what happens to those bars of soap once you check out and how somebody has built, uh, I think they're called clean the world and they literally go about and recycle them and, and they create and do something with them versus just tossing them because it was adding to waste. It was a lost opportunity on how you can continue to reuse and start that cycle. And so I love how you're doing it in a space that's near and dear to you. And you're doing it with this work-life integration. You haven't burned the boats. You haven't said, bye family. I'll see you in a couple of years. Uh, You said, let's do this together. And so I think that's really important for those listening today that are either in the process of trying to do something big as well, or have been sitting on the sidelines thinking about this thing they keep telling themselves they should do and haven't yet. And how it took you a little bit of time to finally take that jump and how you've taken that in a strategic conservative manner so that it fit with your life. And most importantly, your most important stakeholders in your house. So Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. It's always good to jam with you. Hopefully, you know, I don't, I don't want you out speaking because I want you focused on building this. And I know this is where your real baby is, but if I see you on the speaking circuit this year, I'm not going to be disappointed. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. To get in touch with the team, drop us an email to podcast at competeeveryday.com. And to find out more about our resources, content, and gear that will help you build that winning mindset so you better compete for your best life, visit competeeveryday.com.